Let's change up the way you watch baseball. Introducing Change Up, a brand new live whip around show across the league, brought to you by MLB and DAZN. Jump in and out of the best places they happen and get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality and a new perspective to the game. It's on every night and available on nearly any device, smart TVs, tablets, mobile and gaming consoles. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Just download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store, sign up by creating an account, and then start watching across any of your devices. That's DAZN, D-A-Z-N. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. It's the regular season, so let's just hop right into it with Zach Cram and some breaking news. All right, so let's kick things off with Zach Cram. Zach, how you doing? More Tuesday news, huh? Yeah, I made a joke about the Kevin Pillar trade uh, fulfilling our quota for uh, our traditional Tuesday morning news dump, and 30 minutes later, Ronald Acuna signed an extension. So we're going to put uh, our original topic on hold for a couple minutes while we break this down. So why don't you uh, give us the details and and tell me what to think? So Ronald Acuna, uh, obviously wonderful young Braves player. He's just won the Rookie of the Year award. He's going to be a cornerstone of the Braves franchise for years to come. And today... It- it came out that he's going to be a cornerstone for even longer than that because he signed, uh, well, I guess a seven-year extension. It's being reported as eight years, even though the first is the 2019 season with two club options on the end. And even if both of those club options are exercised, this will amount to just $124 million for almost the next decade of Acuna, uh, which seems like the biggest swindle, steal, whatever synonym you want to use to show that basically Acuna is going to be incredibly underpaid for the next decade. I haven't seen, like, you usually don't see people get absolutely destroyed in Atlanta like this unless the federal grand army's involved. I was, I went into this with an open mind uh, because Acuna is so far from free agencies. I mean, he's frankly so far from arbitration that you wouldn't, you can't like look at the I mean, it's essentially a seven-year, $100 million deal. Um, you can't look at that and think, wow, you know, he's only making, what is that, $13 million a year, $14 million, and and judge that against free agent salaries. But then you look at the, like, the two extension deal, or two extension years are, are $17 million each. Like, what? Like, if, if he's going to be worth, uh, going to be worth uh, exercising those options in his 30s, like, what old be the going right for a superstar by that point. I can't, I don't know. It's, it just seems, I mean, you called it a swindle. I think that's, that's not a bad way to describe it. I mean, the Braves just completely put one over on him. And Acuna, I think it's important to note is in this position because he was not a super highly touted prospect when he signed out of Venezuela with Atlanta as a youngster. He, wasn't one of those guys who made, you know, $5 million on the free agent market. I think it was what, just a hundred thousand that he made. Yeah. And he was held down uh, by Atlanta for the first month last year. So he's going to hit free agency a year later uh, than he otherwise would have. He's making the league minimum this year, next year. So he's not really going to have the chance at getting paid for a few years anyway. So you can sort of understand why he would want to lock up the security because if he suffers a career threatening injury tomorrow, then he's not going to have the sort of financial security to fall back on that players who came from more means uh, will have. But at the same time, this is such a potential underpay that it seems like it goes even beyond just that situation. And it's hard to even. So let's address that point, too, because I think that's important. And I I do want to be cautious about how far we go and not uh, generalize unnecessarily. But, you know, nothing in Acuna's contract before he signed this was guaranteed. And, you know, when you sign out of Venezuela at 16, that's not the same as, you know, it being a, having most of a college education and going, you know, going to the draft at 21. And we've seen players like, you know, Alex Bregman came from a comfortable background, went to college and, and still signed a six year, $100 million extension with more service time than Acuna. So, you know, this is not a, a hard and fast rule, but this is an instance of teams 
using every point of leverage against players in these negotiations, even when some of those points of leverage are sort of baked into societal inequality, which like it's gross. And if, you know, not to go the obvious place with this, but this is just sort of how we expect for-profit businesses to act. Um, you know, knowing what the Braves got from Cobb County in that stadium deal, uh, knowing that you know, being relatively certain that they're not going to turn around and say, well, we're paying, you know, $14 million for a $40 million player. Let's go spend that $26 million on the free agent market. They're not going to do that. So it's just sad that, that this is that we expect so little from the businesses that make up such a large part of our society, um, which is not, to, you know. This is life-changing money for Acuna, and I certainly don't blame him for taking this. I just think he could have made – but, you know, if if $100 million over, over the next uh, 10 years or 8 to 10 years versus $200 million, it's not that big a difference for Acuna. It's going to make even less difference for, for uh, you know, the holding company that that owns the Braves and, and runs it from behind that faceless corporate uh, facade. So, yeah, it's – it's uh, mixed emotions for me. Yeah, and I think the next step is, I, I think, like if you're a Braves fan, to hope that they will take these savings and spend them on other players. Maybe spend it on Craig Kimbrell right now because the first weekend of the season showed that Atlanta certainly has a bullpen problem. But I think the way the Braves have operated, especially with the ownership group in the new stadium and mm-hmm. having more public finances. There's a bridge than, I want to sell you, Zach. <laughs> they have more public finances than a lot of teams have, and we know how much money they're making, or at least purporting to make. And I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced that they're going to actually reinvest th- those savings. Yeah, um, I would say the the winners here are Braves ownership and, to a lesser extent, Braves fans who now get to. Uh, be certain that they're going to watch the best player. I mean, God, you know, Acuna is the best player they've developed since Chipper Jones, you know, or Andrew Jones at the very least. Like he's so good. I picked him to win the the MVP this year. And, you know, the Braves went 0-3 this weekend, but Acuna had a couple spectacular plays. Like you could, this is a once in a generation find in, in terms of talent. And now he's locked up with the Braves. And, you know, before we move on, I do want to sort of, I think, it's we should zoom out a little bit and think about the the impact of the slow a couple slow free agent years on players' willingness to sign. You know, Mike Trout came out and said as as much that he just didn't want to deal with the hassle of free agency after talking to Harper and Machado. And we're seeing this knock on effect where teams are, you know, they're taking on a little bit less risk themselves, but they're limiting their their earning ceilings, which, you know, it's it's just disappointing. Um because you know, it doesn't make any difference to you or me whether Acuna makes $100 million or $200 million, you know, but uh, it do- it should matter to us as fans and analysts if if teams aren't turning around and reinvesting the, the that savings in the club instead of just pocketing it and not lowering prices for, uh, you know, for tickets or concessions or anything like that. So, you know, it's uh, like I said, they're they're using every bit of leverage that they can. If we're going to talk about ownership groups not investing in the clubs, is that a good transition to our planned topic for today? Wow, that's a fantastic transition. Um, so we're going to talk. So we wanted to talk about uh, the American League's big dogs had kind of a rough weekend. Are the Mariners uh, leading the American League standings? I believe so. Uh, there's um, no undefeated team left, and the Mariners still have just that one loss. And then, well, the Phillies are undefeated. Uh, American and, League team. Okay, yeah. Um, so the Red Sox had a rough weekend. The Yankees are dealing with some injuries. Uh, Cleveland uh, lost their opener, and there's a little bit of concern with Francisco Lindor still on the shelf. Uh, so let's talk about Cleveland in particular, because I think Boston's going to be fine. I think the Yankees are going to be fine, um, at least for now. There's, I think there's some reason for them to be concerned just because they've suffered so many injuries. But you know, Cleveland, uh, but they've got the depth to overcome it, and Cleveland doesn't, and that's by design. Looking at Cleveland's first weekend, it's impossible not to notice that Francisco Lindor is missing from the lineup. Francisco Lindor is, what, a top five player in baseball. I think he's the best shortstop in baseball, and he's just been a huge part of Cleveland's team. The fact that they've won the last three division titles basically coincides with when Lindor received his promotion from AAA, uh, and he's injured, and he wasn't just injured. He 
suffered a new injury while he was rehabbing from the first one. Uh, the new one being a problem with his ankle that uh, I think hasn't fully been diagnosed yet. I saw uh, yesterday MLB.com reporting that he was going to a second doctor outside the Indians organization to get a second opinion, which is always a concern with these things. And I think yeah. looking at Cleveland's lineup from the first weekend and change is like Jose Ramirez, I think, is a very good player. Carlos Santana has hit great, and I think uh, he was a good bounce-back candidate uh, now that he's back in Cleveland. But man, they were like hitting Tyler Naquin third. There's way too much Hanley Ramirez on this team. I'm not sure where the runs are coming from. And even when Lindor returns, I think this offense is going to be mediocre at best. Yeah, I mean, I it is sort of hard to overstate the difference between Lindor and Eric Stamets, the spore guy from Star Trek Discovery. Um, but even then, like they didn't, the outfield is just not a, it's definitely not a playoff quality outfield. They're, but they're, they're relying on Jose Ramirez because you could use to rely on Hanley Ramirez to, uh, to carry an offense, but they're relying on him and they're re- relying on Lindor when he comes back and they're not going to get much offense from their catchers. You know, Greg Allen as, as a major outfield contributor, like I, I think he's a great bench guy. I think he's a very useful big league player, but not somebody I'd want to give 500 plate appearances to. So they're just, they're essentially just relying on those two middle infielders who are two, two guys who at their best, will finish in top 10 in AL MVP voting and one of the best starting rotations in baseball. And apart from that, it's just a bet that they can go cheap because the rest of the division is so bad. And I think it's also important to note that like Cleveland is most likely going to win this division. I wrote a piece this offseason whose premise was if the entire AL Central combined its rosters, it would basically be Cleveland's equal. But that came with a healthy Lindor, and that's a huge X factor. Also. Like those holes you just mentioned, they're not getting offensive production out of their catchers. Well, they just traded their number one catcher, Jan mm-hmm. Gomes, to Washington. And Jan Gomes isn't like Mike Piazza out there, but he's also a decent hitting catcher. He was an all star. Uh, they lost Michael Brantley in free agency. They didn't even extend him a qualifying offer. And they replaced him with minor league contracts. They replaced him with Jordan Luplau from the Pirates. Uh, I guess Jake Bowers from Tampa Bay, but he looked pretty terrible in the field over the weekend, and it's not like he's the best hitter either. So they cut a lot of money from their payroll last season, which is just a a strange thing to do when so many of their players are basically in their primes and have the start power Mm -hmm. to like make this team maybe the best in the American League if only they put a decent supporting cast around them. And they've managed, I mean, this is a testament, I think, to how good a manager Terry Francona is, but they've put out, I mean, the team that went to game seven of the World Series, the team that won, what was it, 22 games in a row the year after that. None of those outfields were, or none of those outfields were any good either, but this is a whole, a whole new level. Like they're bad enough. This is the overwhelming favorite to win the American League Central. And they decided that Lonnie Chisenhall was, was too expensive. And not only that, they're going to miss him. They're probably going to get away with it, but it's just, I mean, we're seeing the, the downside. It, it, it almost, you know, it's uh, if if karma existed, then Ronald Acuna would be making more money, or Braves tickets would be cheaper. Uh, but it's it's hard not to you know sort of view what happened. You know, view that they're they're paying right now for their lack of lack of depth in that lineup. Where are you on the Twins? Do you think they you know can actually mount a run and contend? Because they certainly look superior to Cleveland over the first week, and I think my concern with Minnesota is just the back end of their rotation and bullpen. Yeah. I don't think can match up with Cleveland's but like Jose Barrios looked really good Jake Odorizzi looked good I think their offense is actually better than Cleveland's so I certainly wouldn't you know pick them to win but I'm not quite counting them off after that first weekend just because of of how they matched up I mean they've got so many boomer bus guys is the problem like if they get the best version of Sano and Jonathan Scope and Byron Buxton then yeah they could make a run but like all three of those guys have been below average hitters in the recent past. You know, Buxton, in spite of being maybe the best defensive center fielder in baseball, wasn't playable for large parts of last year. And, you know, I had parts of this conversation. Um, I did a radio hit at, uh, on a station in Cleveland on Friday, and they were not happy about opening day. And I said, well, you're probably going to be OK as long as you're not facing Jose Barrios every, you know, for 162 games. Um, cause he was really good, but like you said, beyond that, like 
I don't know. I don't have a I don't have a ton of faith in in the rest of that rotation. To say nothing of the, of uh, the bullpen, which yeah, because you look at it's hard to to look at Cleveland with the two best position players in the division, probably, and by far the best rotation, and not just a, a good rotation, but a solid rotation of guys that you could probably count on to throw two hundred innings. You know, you've got four of them. Um, you know, it's not like every other team in the division doesn't have equally big holes without those uh, without those unreplicatable uh, tentpole positions on the team. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, and I think if you zoom out, I would, if I had to pick like one of the four American League powers to just completely collapse and miss the playoffs, I think I'd pick either the Yankees or Red Sox, not because their holes are necessarily any worse, but because I think Tampa Bay is clearly yeah. a better team than any of the contenders uh, in the other divisions. I think Tampa Bay has, a, like, if if you move Tampa Bay to Shreveport and put them in the AL Central, I think they have a decent shot at, at winning the division, uh, just as everything is currently constituted. Um, I think just they have not, a decent chance at winning the AL East, yeah, but I know I how know. you feel and, about that. Yeah, and and what a heat check prediction that is. Uh, we'll see how much you keep bringing that up in, in six months. Um, is there is there anything they could do? I guess that's that's what uh, we should end on. From Cleveland's perspective, maybe the easiest place to upgrade is the bullpen because the bridge between those amazing starters and Brad Hand is really lacking right now with uh, the guys they lost in free agency. It just looks like a completely different bullpen from the one that like revolutionized I mean, playoff baseball a couple seasons ago. And you saw that just last night against the White Sox. Mike Clevenger pitched a gem and then Cleveland lost the lead before ultimately regaining it in the eighth inning. But I think adding uh, basically some high, high reward, maybe lower cost relief options is probably the easiest course to upgrade. I'm curious to see like I don't know, does Bradley Zimmer improve the outfield? I don't know how much he moves the needle when he returns from injury, but it just seems really unlikely that they'll like make that investment. I look at the players who are available this offseason, like Andrew McCutcheon and AJ Pollock didn't sign for that much money. I think either one of them would have just made such a difference in both the outfield and, and the middle of this Bradley lineup. Bradley signed for even less money than they did mm-hmm. on a shorter and- contract. So if you're worried about limiting your long-term exposure, like I could... I'm almost sympathetic to to the idea of Cleveland, you know, not wanting to pay McCutcheon was it three years and fifty million dollars, but they could have brought ba- uh, Brantley back for less. So I think I'm not necessarily convinced that they're going to add to the bullpen until like July because they just don't need to. You know, I think Leonis Martinez is actually pretty good and will probably play better than he did the first weekend. It, you know, they have enough guys that maybe one or two of them will play well, but I just think the ceiling is so low that there's no way to make this a good lineup without, you know, engaging in a practice they seem loath to engage in. So here's the thing. Here's where I think the outfield has uh, the opportunity to improve, like even conceding that you're going to, for reasons passing understanding, like pay literal league minimum minor league free agents, guys off the streets, even conceding that that's the approach you're going to take. I'm surprised that that approach didn't yield a better crop of outfielders than it has. Um, I mean, their, their outfield is just so bad right now. And, you know, I, I like Leonis Martin as much as the next guy. I think he could be useful, but he's got to be useful between two guys who can actually hit. And like part of the, what a, a lot of what he gives you is the ability to cover the gap, you know, so you can play somebody like Jake Bowers in, in left field, you know, it, at that point it's incumbent on Bowers to hit, which he hasn't done quite yet. But yeah, I mean, there's, it's just, it's very strange. Like it's almost like a, a literal poor man's version of those Tigers teams that had Cabrera and Verlander and Victor Martinez and uh, um, Scherzer and Rick Porcello and like seven guys off the street. You know, so I there's obviously a lot of room to improve even after the season's already started. But, you know, we'll see what they're willing to spend to take advantage of that. It's almost like when you build a Stars and Scrubs roster and the best star gets hurt. It doesn't Mm -hmm. look so good anymore. They are getting what they paid for. Uh, So on that note, it's time to to move on to our next segment. But uh, thanks for joining me, Zach. I'll talk to you next week. Until then. Thanks, Zach. My next guest is Megan Montemura of The Athletic. Uh, She's coming on to talk about Bryce Harper and baseball's only undefeated team, the Philadelphia Phillies. 
So here to talk about uh, probably the biggest baseball story of the weekend is someone who was there. Megan Montemuro is a Philly Speed writer for The Athletic, uh, and she joins us now. So, Megan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I watched the the first game on TV. What did I miss? You know, what did being there add to to the atmosphere? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just the vibe around the ballpark and in the clubhouse. Um, I've, I've been covering the team since mid-season of 2014, and, you know, I really had not seen the ballpark like that. Um, the, the clubhouse, even, you know, since the start of spring, really, has just been so different from what it was at the end of last year. Um, you know, there's a really good mix of more veteran leadership and guys who have, you know, done it at the at the big league level who are all-star caliber players. Um, and I really just think that collectively there's a different amount of confidence and swagger in that clubhouse when you add guys like that. Um, so I would say the biggest thing is that is the atmosphere. I don't know how well that, that, uh, showed up, um, on the broadcast, but, um, th- that definitely stood out to me. Bryce Harper obviously wants the, the fans in Philadelphia to, uh, to like him. This is something that I've talked about a lot. Um, you know, how you're closer to this than I am. How, how is it coming off? You know, he went over three in his first game, obviously, and then hit those two huge home runs later in the weekend. You know, What's the the fan reaction to the first uh, first weekend of, of Bryce Harper in a Phillies uniform? Oh, I mean they're they're definitely loving it. I mean, I, I do think I think it says a lot about him that he's making the effort to do things um, to build a relationship with fans and the team. You know, he's coming up with handshakes, individual handshakes with all of his teammates, which I know I think some people have seen after the home runs when he's done some of them with Hoskins and Franco and other guys. Um, you know, wearing the fanatic cleat. Um, on opening day and, you know, bowing out to the fans in right field. And, um, you know, I, I think he's making a, a very specific focus on trying to do stuff like that. And I know I, I, I've seen some people on maybe social media say that, you know, it's, it's pandering or whatever, but, you know, I, he clearly he's planning to be here the next 13 years. And, um, you know, I think it says a lot that he's trying to make efforts to build that connection with fans. And I, from everything I've fans certainly appreciate it and you know they're embracing him as one of their own kind of thing so um right now i think it's off to a good start yeah i mean this is something i keep coming back to is i don't think it's possible to pander too hard to phillies fans i think just (laughs) any level of attention they will they'll just eat up yeah and i mean he already made a statement obviously choosing to sign with the team i know you know the naysayers or national fans or giants fans will say of course he did you know they offered him the most money and gave him 13 years but you know he did still choose to you know lay roots here with his wife and they just announced on instagram yesterday that um you know they're gonna have a baby later this year and so you know i think all that stuff matters and I do, I do think, you know, maybe from the outside looking in, maybe, maybe people will think it's too much, but the thing I've sensed from Philly fans, I think they appreciate it. So tonight, uh, you know, as we record this show, we'll go out probably like an hour or two before, uh, his return to Washington. So maybe previewing that might not be, uh, the best use of our time, but you know, what are your expectations for, uh, for what it's going to be like then? I mean, it's kind of what he had said the other day. You know, he's expecting some boos. He probably will get some cheers. Um, and I, I think that's kind of a realistic thing. I think the Nationals kind of help themselves by offering, you know, that 10-year, $300 million deal, even though it was obviously weirdly structured with so much of it deferred. Um, but I think that gives the franchise a little bit of cover in terms of, you know, uh, fan perception maybe that hey you know they can claim that they made an effort to bring him back um so i would say probably mixed reactions i would expect um i'm certainly interested in seeing that but i do think there will be some booing so i want to one thing that harper does on the field and you've written about this is he adds i mean not just him but jt real muto and uh and gene segura and andrew mccutcheon like this was a team that put in you know, it came relatively close to making the playoffs last year. And now four of their top five hitters uh, this season weren't on the team last year. And so, you know, I have obviously read a lot and, you know, was pre- I thought I was prepared for this lineup, but just watching it over the past three days, 
like it almost reminds me of the Astros of the past couple of years where there's just no mm-hmm. it's relentless. It's it they can put on a conga line and they did that a couple of times against the Braves. Yeah, and you know, I kind of wrote about this. What really makes the lineup dangerous in my opinion is you have guys like Adubel Herrera, Cesar Hernandez, and Michael Franco hitting six, seven, eight in that lineup. And those are guys that have experience you know, hitting somewhere in the one through three or one through four spots in the order and are used to the pressures that come with that. Um, and so when you have a lineup that deep, you know, JT Romuto said it after opening day that, you know, there's no, there's no easy outs in the lineup, really. Um, you know, you, you even look at a guy like Franco who, you know, he hasn't really maybe reached the potential of what people have thought he could be as a hitter. This is a guy who had the lowest strikeout rate on the Phillies last year. So he puts the ball in play. It's the kind of guy that you want to have hitting in front of the pitcher. He clearly show, has shown uh, mm-hmm. the first home stand that he definitely can still hit for power and, and you know take advantage of the situation. So I think those three guys at the bottom part of the lineup is part of what makes it so dangerous because you, you can't say, okay, oh, we got through you know the first five guys were through Real Muto. And, you know, now, now we can, you know, count these as easy outs. I mean, they really don't have that in the lineup right now. And so I think they're going to score plenty of runs and that's kind of, that's exactly what they're going to need to do. Cause I'm, I'm not exactly sold necessarily on the pitching staff. Yeah. And we'll come back to that in a second. Um, but yeah, Oduble and Franco in particular are two guys who have at their best have been all-star quality players for the Phillies, but have been a little bit inconsistent. And just what we've seen from Franco the past couple of days, you know, he combines that bat-to-ball ability with really impressive power, which, like you said, makes him, like, if if you can afford to hit a guy like that eighth, like, in that position in the lineup, it doesn't matter that he doesn't walk that much because he's going to put the ball in play, he's going to do stuff with it. Um, obviously, it's early, but, you know, what have you seen from those two guys that, that maybe gives you a read on whether they're going to, hit that peak this year, or if we're going to settle into maybe both of them being merely league average hitters or maybe not even that. I mean, a double, I mean, it's, it, he's not that far removed from being, you know, one of the better hitters in the game. He has, you know, an all-star appearance to his name. Um, he showed in the first, you know, two months last year that when he gets hot, I mean, he, he can single-handedly carry an offense because he's capable of driving the ball and hitting doubles. Um, and, and has some pop in his bat. The biggest thing for him is, you know, he gets a little, swing out of his shoes happy kind of uh, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that still kind of needs to be reined in occasionally. Um, but I think it'll help for both those guys that they don't have the pressure of having to carry this team. You know, the, the to score runs and drive in runs is not going to be solely on them. Um, and yeah, with Franco, I mean, I think he's in a great position to have a great season um, because, you know, that eight spot, there is a little bit of, um, you know, a challenge there when you're hitting in front of the pitcher because you might not get a lot of stuff to see. But I think he's shown that he can take advantage of mistake pitches and he certainly has the power to, to put the ball out and pull it. So I think those guys, you know, have a, have the chance um, to be the best versions of themselves and, and reach maybe more of their potential. And at the same time, if, if they end up having, you know, league average seasons or, you know, career average seasons, I mean, that, that would still be great for the Phillies that's, because, yeah, that's, you know, that's fine from they're six, not relying seven, on them yeah. to, yeah, they're not relying on them to be, you know, the, their, their peak potential. All right. So let's talk about the, the starting rotation uh, and I guess maybe the pitching staff more generally. Uh, I thought the Phillies were a good, would have been a good landing spot for somebody like Dallas Keuchel. Uh, but even beyond that, like if they had made a run at, at maybe a Gio Gonzalez type. Uh, when he was still on the market, like I, I think most of the pitchers, I mean, Nola is, is an ace, but past him, it's a lot of guys who I like individually components of what they can do, but I'm not sure how much I trust them over 30 starts. And I think we saw that a little bit over the weekend where, you know, Arietta walked what, like six guys um, and Pavetta would occasionally break off that big curveball, and it would look good, but he got, you know, the, the results, um, you know, not exactly what you want from from your number two starter. So, you know, I know you wrote about uh, Arietta uh, trying to find his arm slot, bring it back up compared to what it mm-hmm. was uh, the past year, and and some of the injury problems that he suffered that might have impacted him down the down the stretch. You know, where are you with this rotation? What should we we uh, you know be looking for from the outside? Yeah, I mean, I do think the biggest thing is they're banking and uh, on the, some of these the young guys really take another step forward you know Pavetta 
Eflin, uh, who's going to be starting in, in D.C., and then Velasquez, who they're skipping through the first time in the rotation because of all the off days. Um, you know, they need those guys to, to keep progressing forward. And I know fans, you know, wanted them to pursue Keuchel, and, and I understand both perspectives. You know, from the Phillies' perspective, they really didn't want, you know, another ground ball pitcher. They weren't going to meet Keuchel's demands in terms of length of a deal. And they do kind of still need to figure out, you know, who, especially for, you know, a guy like Vince Velasquez, like, it's at the point where he needs to perform this year. Otherwise they're going to call up a guy from AAA and, and roll the dice with somebody else. So, um, you know, with Arietta, you know, I, I, as, as, as I looked at the numbers, um, for the arm slot thing, he had an issue last year where he was dropping more three quarters, um, and it was giving his pitches a lot of run and he was having problems where if he made a mistake, uh, they were usually getting hit because of that. So he's more on top of the ball. Um, his vertical and horizontal numbers in spring training were much more uh, closely aligned to his numbers from uh, 2015 uh, when he was with the Cubs. And so I think over you know these next few starts, I think maybe that'll stand out a little bit more. Obviously, it wasn't ideal conditions for any pitcher uh, when he started on Sunday night. Um, so I'm interested in seeing if, if he's able to replicate what he was doing in spring. So I think that'll make a big difference. Um, and then turn, I mean, everyone kind of pegs Nick Pavetta as the breakout guy, which, you know, he certainly has stuff for it. You know, he needs to come out aggressive. One thing they're preaching to guys like Pavetta and Velasquez, is they don't want them saving stuff for, to try and make it, you know, six or seven innings. They want them, you know, uh, foot to the pedal, being aggressive from, pitch one and giving it all they have. And, um, you know, I'm interested in seeing, you know, Pavetta can put maybe the mental part of things together as well and, and not get frustrated when he's out on the mound. I think that Pavetta and Velasquez in particular are suited to take advantage of that, that they can go harder for, you know, if they Mm -hmm. don't think they have to pitch six or seven innings. But the obvious question after that is, how much confidence do you have in the bullpen? And, you know, Sir Anthony yeah. Dominguez was great in a, in, in a very versatile role last year. They signed David Robertson. You know, but beyond that, you know, do you think that they have the bullpen to make that work if they have to pull guys in the fourth or fifth inning? Well, I mean, on paper, you know, through the offseason, the bullpen was looking like one of the strengths. And so obviously they added Real Muto and, and Harper. But part of that assumption was that you'd have Tommy Hunter and, you know, he's injured and um, he felt soreness after throwing a bullpen the other day. So he might not be back till May at the earliest at this point. And then Victor Arano, who is a really important multi-inning guy, versatile that they relied on quite a bit last year. He had an awful spring to the point where they had to send him to AAA. So those were two guys that were really going to add some depth and give Kapler um, more options, especially, you know, in the fifth and sixth innings. And so you lose two guys like that. And now you're kind of piecing things together a little bit more. Um, obviously, you know, they view Naris, um, Robertson and Dominguez as kind of the late inning guys. Plus you have Pat Neshek to employ however you want, um, in the late innings as well. So they do still have, um, some solid back end pieces there, but in terms of, you know, if you're going to try and sell some of these guys and, and aren't concerned about them going more than five innings, then you're going to need some guys to start stepping up in those potential fifth, sixth innings. So uh, I'm not as confident as I was in the offseason um, because I do think their their depth and strategy took a little hit um, with Hunter and Ariano's uh, situations. But I do think that they have enough and, and they have some veteran pieces to, to make it work. So let's sort of tie it together and end on this, you know, the Phillies with all the moves they made as much money as they spent, um, you know, the expectation has to be the playoffs in the the short term or, or medium term. But at the same time, you know, the rotation is a little bit weak and that you look at the division, how good the Mets looked, uh, this weekend or the Braves who got swept and then turned around and just crushed the Cubs last night. It, this is going it, it's far from a, a certainty that the Phillies are going to make good on that this year. Yeah. You know, so how intense, uh, is the expectation to make the playoffs this year, or if they, you know, win eighty-seven games and come close and and build up some momentum? Do you think that's going to be satisfactory? No, I, I I think it's playoffs or bust. I mean, they're definitely a win now mode. I, I don't think you can add the type of talent they added and commit the money they did to Bryce Harper and find eighty-seven wins acceptable. Um, there's a lot of there's going to be continued pressure on Kapler to. To manage this the situation properly, and I think it helps 
for him that, you know, he's not really going to have to tinker with the lineup. I mean, other than third base and center field, they're, he's going to be sending out pretty much the same guys every single day. So I think that'll help. Um, but no, this is a team that has to make the playoffs, whether it's winning the division, which obviously, as you mentioned, you know, that the NL East is going to be a beast this year or getting one of those two wild card spots. Um, you know, I think this offense is clearly talented enough to carry the team. Um, obviously, it's going to come down to how, can they stay healthy and can they get enough from their pitching to to really kind of hold serve and, and be, take, be able to take advantage of the offensive output. All right. Well, win or lose, this is going to be one of the most interesting teams in baseball. So I'm sure we'll talk to you again uh, as the season goes on. But until, yeah, until then, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Megan. You can find her work at The Athletic Philadelphia, and you can follow her on Twitter at M underscore Montemiro. Uh, my f- next and final guest is a familiar uh, name and voice. It's Ben Lindbergh. He's going to come on to close things out with some Padres chat. All right, so uh, for our last segment, we have not one but two guests. We have Ben Lindbergh and his dog, Ben. <laughs> Grumpkin, how, how are you all doing? Yeah, Grumpkin's going to keep quiet during this segment, I hope, but she may chime in from time to time. So we're going to talk about the San Diego Padres, which... I mean, in, <laughs> there's a sentence that, wow, you, yeah, <laughs> well, that, that felt weird coming out of my mouth because we've been doing this, po- this podcast for well, parts of four seasons now. I'm not sure we've ever like outside of some, we did the, the Christian Bedencourt uh, thing. We interviewed right. him, but yeah, know. I'm not sure podcasts had been invented the last time anyone would have thought to talk about the Padres in the first week of the season. Pretty wild. So I just uh, just got off the phone with uh, Megan Montemiro, who was telling me about the the tone of the Phillies clubhouse after signing Harper and um, David Robertson and McCutcheon and making the, the trades for Segura and JT Riomuto. And like the difference that in like tone and optimism and confidence that, you know, was evidence evidenced in uh from 2018 to 2019. And, you know, the last time I had been in the Padres clubhouse was early in the season when they were in Houston last year. And, you know, it was, it was not, let me just say it was nothing like what I saw in spring training. Like just mm-hmm. the, the vibe that there was almost like a bounciness to it after, you know, getting uh, Manny Machado and bringing up a lot of these young players. And, you know, that vibe really carried over onto the field. I think they're one of the most, they're one of my must watch teams for 2019. So we're going to, you know, talk about that for yeah. the next 15 minutes or so. They are for me too. That's kind of how we decided to do this segment. We were talking about what we should talk about and you were asking me what I was watching and I said I was watching the Padres and you said you were watching the Padres and so we wanted to talk about the team we're watching and we're watching them because they are suddenly really interesting and exciting. They may very well end up with 70-something wins again as they have just about every year for the last several, except for the ones where they won 60-something. So in terms of win total, it might not look all that different, but it just goes to show how different a 70-win-something season can feel depending on how close you are to the next 80 or 90-win or 100-win season. I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but the Padres are clearly on the way up. And even if they're not a great team right now, they're really interesting ones because the players who are going to be on the next good Padres team are largely here. They've arrived, and even if they haven't reached their peaks yet, they're really fun to watch, and there will be reinforcements coming throughout the season. Yeah, and that's I think that's an important distinction to make, uh, you know, as opposed to some of the other teams that are sort of on the come, you know, whether the the Phillies or the Mets or... Um, or the Cardinals, maybe if you want to loop them in, like those teams were pretty good last year. And you've seen a lot of those pieces either in those uniforms or other uniforms elsewhere. But like, you know, Chris, there's such a, such a novelty to the Padres Mm -hmm. to, you know, I've seen Eric Lauer play in college and I've seen uh, Fernando Tatis play uh, in the futures game, but you know, I've never seen them. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a little bit of Lauer last year, but you know, there's, there's a newness to them and Chris Paddock and, and uh, some of the other guys are bringing up, you know, Mejia. It, it, we're watching them face major league competition for an extended period of time for the first time, and the results so far have been, you know, it, it's been really fun to watch. I think even beyond the novelty, like these are exciting, charismatic young players they're bringing up. 
Yeah, and you can watch them and enjoy them with a clean conscience too. You're talking elsewhere in this episode about teams that haven't spent and extensions that make us scratch our heads. And you look at this team and they're the team that went out and signed Manny Machado when a lot of other teams weren't willing to. And they're the team that promoted Fernando Tatis Jr. for opening day when a lot of other teams probably would have made the decision to keep him down to manipulate his service time. So not saying the Padres are perfect and certainly they've gone without spending for years at a time. But right now, at least, they are really trying to win, which, of course, they did in A.J. Preller's first year as GM when they just tried to go from nothing to something in a single offseason. And that was fun and interesting and compelling, Mm -hmm. too, but it just wasn't very smart and it didn't work really well. And this plan that they're following now is really sustainable because they not only have one of the best farm systems we've ever seen with maybe 10 top prospects in the top 100 league-wide, But a lot of them are here or at the upper levels and we can lay eyes on them. So it's not just a a bunch of guys in low A or rookie ball who might be good three or four years down the road. Some of them are good or at least interesting right now. And what we've seen so far, I mean, as we speak, the Padres have the second lowest starter ERA in the National League. I don't think that is going to continue. I think that oh, is... Oh, you don't? I thought you were here to <laughs> to uh, eat crow over your bad-mouthing of my man Eric Lauer opening day starter. I am not, although he did have a good opening day start, but not a whole lot of strikeouts. That's my concern about Eric Lauer. But I think that was largely a product of facing the San Francisco Giants, which will probably make a lot of pitchers look good this season. So that's not going to last. But even their starters are kind of interesting. You mentioned Lauer. Lucchese was the guy I picked for the league for the team leading innings total this year. I think he's good. Then you have Chris Paddock, who made his major league debut, and he was maybe the most anticipated member of this rotation. And he's a fun guy, not only because of his stuff and his excellent minor league stats, but also he has a fun attitude and persona. He has so much. (laughs) He has so much sauce. He really does. You can tell, like. (laughs) There's a, a vibe to, you know, Cindergard's got this a little bit to guys who, big Texans who have never experienced <laughs> failure, you know, yes. like there's, there's a, a, a way that they carry themselves. And uh, yeah. he's, he's got like, he is the most big Texan who's never experienced failure I've seen in a while. Yeah, he carried himself into his opening day start in full cowboy getup with like boots and a hat and sunglasses and really looked the part. He really went for it. And I think someone asked him after the start if he was happy with how it had gone because he retired the first 10 hitters he faced. And he said he had envisioned retiring the first 27 hitters he faced, which is uh, indicative of his confidence, I think, which is fun to see because he actually has the stuff to back it up. So the concern there, you've also got Nick Markovicius, who had not made a start above a ball before his very first successful start in the majors this year. And took and and pitched really well in his debut. Yeah. It took like an all-time bad beat loss. Yeah, and he's got great minor league stats, really nice strikeout to walk ratios, but in high A, so I don't know how much you can make of that. Yeah, but, we'll see. And then you have Matt Strom, who, like Paddock, is probably on an innings limit. I mean, that's the big concern about this team and this rotation is that no one in this rotation, I think, has ever exceeded 136 and two-thirds innings in a, a single season, or that's at least the the top four members of the rotation. Yeah, whatever it was Lucchese pitched last year, I think everybody else is uh, is a rookie. Right. Or no, so, Strom's got a couple – sorry, Strom's got yeah. a couple years' experience, but mostly out of the bullpen. Strom's the old man of the rotation at 27. So this is a really, really young group. It's a long look in the mirror for us. I know. Well, it's going to get ugly at some point this season. And I think that is why, A, you have Andy Green talking about getting creative and openers and bullpen days. And the Padres had an extraordinary bullpen last year. So if that holds up to some extent, they could kind of paper over the, the cracks in the rotation by doing bullpen days now and then. And so they might get creative. They might do some fun stuff there. And also, they have been very heavily involved in the trade market for starting rotation options, such as it is. They were, of course, connected to Kluber and Bauer over the winter. 
And even more recently than that, they've been connected to Marcus Stroman. They've been connected to Dallas Keuchel. I mean, if you plug in Dallas Keuchel onto this team, I don't know that it makes the difference between contention and non-contention in 2019, but it gets them a lot closer. It really raises the floor, I think. And if they would get him under control for a few years, an innings eater type, that's what they'll need. I think they're going to be bringing up more young guys, so there will be reinforcements on the way. But that's really the the problem. That's the thing holding back this team this year. Yeah, and and they're going to get some reinforcements. You know, Denelson Lamette is going to he's he missed all of last year with Tommy John surgery. He's supposed to be back um, sometime this year. So you know, he's another guy with major league experience uh, who can come in and and maybe plug one of those holes if they have to shut down uh, Paddock for a while. So you know, they're. It'll be interesting to see how they make this work. I think they can, um, but it's going to take some doing on on AJ Prowler's part. Yeah, and Andy Green's as well. And mm-hmm. I think on the position player side, you have a, a wealth of options there. They really almost had too many players for their roster spots. And so you have like in right field right now, you've got Franmil Reyes, but you also have Franchi Cordero and Hunter Renfro, just a lot of F's, F names in the mix there. And it's not clear who's going to get the most of the playing time there, but it's just a a really interesting crop of players. And you have Mejia, you have Hedges, who I enjoy watching as a a catcher defense connoisseur. Mm -hmm. And of course, Tatis is there right now. You have other top prospects on the way. You have Machado, who is a superstar in his prime, hasn't really showed it yet, but he will. It's just a matter of time. So there's just a a lot of talent on this team, just top to bottom. I'm not saying everyone will be good, but other than Ian Kinsler, who's kind of the outlier there at almost 37 years old, and maybe the the one guy who's past his prime in this lineup, I mean, it's really just a, a team on the upswing. And there's something refreshing about that, even if you can see the cracks and the warts and they're not quite there yet. They're going to win in an interesting way. They're going to lose sometimes in an interesting way. And you can project what this team will look like two years down the road or even as soon as next season. That's got to be a lot of fun for Padres fans because they just haven't had this in the longest time or ever. I don't know that the Padres have ever had a a sustainable, just wide, deep talent base like this. I don't know that they've ever gone about it in such a methodical way and come up with this incredible crop of prospects. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And no fan base deserves this more, I think, than the Padres fan base. Oh, I don't want to get into deserving fan bases. (laughs) Maybe not, but... If you are going to do that, I mean, the Padres have 50 years of mediocrity and really, really occasional success. So I just think that they've earned this. I mean, they've gone without a title. They've made the playoffs, what, five times in 50 years, something like that. I mean, it's been a, a dry half century or so for Padres fans. And right now, the Padres have the city to themselves, which is another aspect that makes this all fun. There's no other major professional sports team in San Diego. And we've seen that the Padres can draw when they are good, which doesn't happen very often. But when it does, they get an attendance boost or when they open the new park, they got an attendance boost. So I do think San Diego will support this team when it's good. And we're not far away from that. So this one uh, side effect of the Padres being suddenly fascinating, um, I think it was I think it was Jason Kirk of SB Nation uh, tweeted something recently about like if the Padres just disappeared off the face of the earth, would anybody notice? And obviously (laughs) that's not the case now um, or else we've just wasted 10 minutes on a podcast (laughs) segment. Um, But they've long been my pick for like least interesting team in baseball. Most teams are whether good or bad have some compelling thing about them. But the Padres for so long, like right down to the boring uniforms have have been just eminently ignorable. And now they're good and interesting now, or now they're good and interesting. Now uh, the Brewers who are also, who are usually high up on that list are not only like really fascinating, but they have the reigning MVP and they were the reigning uh, number one seed in the national league playoffs. I, who is the most boring team in baseball now? Huh? Well, I mean, I guess the Orioles, the, the Tigers, maybe, They're probably in the running. Uh, Both of those teams are not only bad right now, terrible right now, but years away from possibly being good again, which is kind of the the killer combination. Uh, Those are the ones that really come to mind. I mean, I think the the Orioles have the possibility of like 
I'm not sure it's it's possible to have a boring 110 loss season. That's the thing, yeah. And you can put the Marlins in that group probably too, although maybe they're closer to coming out of it than the Orioles and the Tigers are. But yeah. that's, I mean, last year it was kind of fun. <laughs> Sorry, Mallory Rubin, if you're listening and Orioles and Royals fans out there, but it was kind of fun to see the race to the bottom for those teams and see just how low they could go. And yeah, if there's any team that's going to give the 2018 Orioles a run for their money loss-wise, it's the 2019 Orioles. Yeah, Tigers might be it. Because like, <laughs> if the night's darkest just before the dawn, the night is only getting darker up here. Yeah, uh, and they're not even currently the worst. There's something to be said for being the absolute right. worst right now. I don't now think because... the worst team in baseball can be the most boring team in baseball. Yeah. Because it's it's a source of curiosity to see how low they can go. Plus, you can maybe look forward to the number one pick, which is something at least to look forward to. Whereas if you're the Tigers and you're maybe the second or third worst team in baseball right now, and you're at least a few years removed from being good and at least a few years removed from being good again in terms of like current star power, I guess you've got Cabrera, but that's about it. That would probably be my pick. Well, let's... Just like as a back of the napkin judgment for for how far away the Tigers are. Do you know who Casey Mize is? <laughs> I do. I do know. Okay. He's a, a number one pick, so that I do know. Okay. That's my my judge or my my judge like part of my my ruler for for how close a prospect is to the majors is whether you know <laughs> you know anything about it. Yeah. So well, that's, I think number one picks probably get a an exemption. Well, I don't know. You <laughs> you have so much knowledge in your head. I don't know what what sort of, you know, sifts out the bottom. Yeah, that's true. There's lots of interesting fun facts in there that could be cra- crowding out Casey Mice, but he's still in there for now. Okay, cool. So, maybe they are closer than we think, but uh <laughs> All right, so we're going to give that big old sieve of information a couple more whacks next week. But until then, uh, thanks for joining me, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, talk to you then. That'll just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks to Zach and Ben. Thanks to our special guest, Megan Montemura of The Athletic. Special thanks to Bobby Wagner, who not only produced today's episode, but he had to reschedule his appointment to get a Peter Alonzo back tattoo in order to come into the studio and do so. Uh, That's dedication to the job. Thanks to Ronald Acuna, Bryce Harper, and Chris Paddock for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.